Hello and welcome to the latest Guernsey Green Finance podcast, which is rated one of the top 10 most useful sustainable finance podcasts by Green Finance Guide. Guernsey is one of the jurisdictions leading the way in green and sustainable finance. And as part of this podcast series, we will be speaking to and learning from some of the leading global figures in the field. My name is Rosie Alsop. I'm Director of Communications at We Are Guernsey. That's the promotional agency for Guernsey's finance industry. Today, I'm delighted to be speaking to Fate Sigir, who is Head of Sustainable Investing at McKenzie Investments, and Natasha Stromberg, who's Director of Sustainable Advocacy and Stewardship at McKenzie Investments. Welcome to both of you. Thank you, Rosie. Now, Fate and Natasha, uh, I'd like to start by introducing you both to our listeners. Uh, And how did you end up working in this area of green finance? And it would be great if you could tell us a little bit of your personal backstory. Can we start with Fate, please? Sure. Thank you. And and, um, I think Natasha and I are both very excited to to be with you uh, today. So for, for me, um, sustainable finance and green finance has been, it's uh, an, a newer area for me, although I think I've been preparing for this my, my whole career. Um, I'm an accountant uh, by education and, and I've spent the better part of my career really uh, focused on building new uh, business areas, leading new initiatives and uh, of more of transformative nature uh, for, for um, my current employer and even some of, some of the employers that I had the opportunity to work with in the past. Um, what's interesting is I, I started my career in, in construction materials uh, for a well-known company that's uh, Lafarge. Um, uh, they're, they're out of Paris and now I, I believe uh, they've merged with uh, Wholesome. Um, and so I started as an analyst and one of my first projects uh, in Toronto was to add an environmental fee to each load of our concrete. So I had to work with our dispatch system. It was kind of like a, a little bit of a big deal, deal sorry. And I Remember, we, we started with a dollar and then we realized, oh, my gosh, we need a bit more money to clean out our, our, our uh, concrete drums and so on. And so that went on to three. And I'm not sure uh, what, what it's at now, but it's interesting just the, the um, parallels right between uh, one of the first uh, initiatives I led in my professional career and what I do today. Um, I, I've been at McKenzie for about five years now, It'll be five years in February. And I really feel like this is, you know, as, as you progress in your career, it's wonderful when you can, um, you know, every organization you work for, um, you find much more, much more closer and tighter alignment with your own per- personal values. And I, I really believe um, that's for, for McKenzie and our parent company, uh, IGM Financial, that's, that's uh, what it's been for, for me. Um, and so, in, you know, I've held a number of roles. This is my third role in the organization. Um, my initial role was really fo- focused on research, uh, uh, client experience, um, uh, data and analytics. And then I moved into a role which was fairly new for us, building out our innovation uh, and, and market strategy function. So I did that for a couple of years. And, and as I was um, you know, working through that, we, I was involved in the framing of, of what are the focus areas that we needed as an organization to ensure that um, you know, we, were, we were successful and we existed 5, 10, 15 years out, but also that we were meeting on the demands of our investors. And so you know, in, in, in um, 2019, we, we were like, no, this absolutely needs to be a big focus. We're going to bring on a leader to, uh, to help lead it and build it for us. And, and so you know, when 
that happened, I whispered to my CEO, I'm like, I would love to do this because I had, you know, helped to kind of frame it. I was already involved in in much of the work and with the um, some of the ESG ratings providers and just some of the investor research we were doing. Um, so I'm, I'm very much excited to, to have had the opportunity to have the opportunity to build and lead this for us. And, you know, in, in I, I know you're seeing this, you know, across Europe, it's fairly newer in, in North America, right? Both, I think maybe even in the US, it's, uh, they're a little bit further ahead than, than Canada, but this is truly um, transformational. And, and the fact that now we're asking organizations to not just focus on their shareholders, um, but also to, to expand their, their focus to a multi-stakeholder model and to really think about the long-term um, and, and what their actions today uh, and how their actions today uh, impact the, the future uh, for, for those stakeholders. So we see it as, as quite um, transformational. And, and as I mentioned, I'm, I'm really um, excited to lead this. There's, there's so much work we have to do in this industry, which I'm sure we'll, we'll get to a little bit later in, in the podcast. I'm sure we will. Um, thank you for that. Natasha, how about you? So my route into green finance really came through regulation and I joined the UK regulator, the FSA, as it was then back in 2010 after the financial crisis. And I was part of the task force on commodity derivatives. And that's when I really started to see the effect of global finance on the real economy, Um, you know, particularly in areas such as oil and metals. And I was the supervisor of the London Metal Exchange. And and that's really where the rubber hits the road with finance and the real economy. Uh, We're looking at the type of metals that are traded, uh, such as cobalt. Um, And cobalt uh, is a metal that is sourced, as you probably know, from the Congo. It's in all of our electronics. But there are issues in the supply chain, not least human rights issues, but also environmental issues. Um, And I started to get extremely interested in this. And I thought this is where I want my career to go. Um, I worked a lot with European regulation. Uh, Again, saw the impact of how regulation drives the finance industry. This is particularly in Europe. And we're going to come to that later on in the podcast. So ever since then, through um, roles in regulatory affairs, I've just been pivoting my career, much like fate, towards sustainability. Very interested not only in the environmental impacts um, of finance, but also the social impacts of finance. And uh, like fate, I can see my career, um, you know, continuing in sustainable finance from here on in. That's really good to know. Um, And thanks for such a great introduction, both of you. What fascinating backstories you have. And I'd also like to say on our podcast, we've spoken to lots of uh, people who are based in UK and US, but I'm thrilled to welcome you as our first Canadian guests. Fate, can you give our listeners a quick introduction to how sustainable investing is understood in Canada? Because I think um, you alluded earlier to the fact it's it's a slightly different picture from everywhere else. Yeah, that's that's right, Rosie. I um, So a couple of things, sustainable investing more broadly is actually quite common um, in Canada, specifically um, around um, with with institutional investors and even with within the industry itself. So I say, you know, the the you know two kind of areas or approaches that I'd focus on. And if you if you have had the opportunity to review the Global Sustainable Investment Review, you'd see that um, Canadian asset managers and owners are amongst the highest 
in integrating material ESG risks and also amongst the highest in their active ownership uh, approaches. So their stewardship strategies, uh, how they leverage proxy voting uh, to, to make a difference. So in, in Canada, uh, it makes up about 60% of, of the total assets, which again, I believe is, is amongst the highest uh, of, of all the countries that, that report, to, sorry, all the jurisdictions that report to the GSI um, ARC. Now, I think the, the reason for that is, you know, Canadian, the Canadian economy is so heavily reliant on the resource sectors. And I think there's a recognition that, you know what, we, we see this global movement happening around us. And so that, that focus on managing risk, um, specifically, you know, climate risk, you know, and whether it's, you know, physical or, or transition, um, and then engaging with the companies and, and investments that we hold in our portfolios is, is so critical and important. Um, so some of the things, you know, when, when RPMs or when our team is engaging with, with companies, we make sure that they understand what's happening around the globe and the implication that that might have on, on the, you know, our export business uh, outside of uh, our borders. So, um, so if, like if you, and, and so that we consider, um, you know, ESG integration and stewardship as basically, you know, table stakes in, in Canada. Where we start to see, you know, much more of a um, new kind of investor demand coming is in the um, sustainable solutions or, or products. So this is, you know, primarily like in, in Europe, I define it as Article 9, and maybe you're touching on Article 8, but this is where in the investment objective, you, you actually have prioritized ESG, and, and you're looking beyond just delivering the traditional risk return. Um, um, objectives to to the investor. You're also looking at delivering on some sustainability uh, objectives as well. That is still in, in Canada today. It's about thirty percent uh, of of uh, sorry thirty billion dollars uh, in, in assets. Um, so still quite small, but growing uh, growing. Um, I say exponentially year over year. Um, you know, one of the things we we still struggle with, especially. Um, again, very, very well known in, in the institutional space. If we go into the retail investor space, we still see there's a gap in investors' desire and the demand we're seeing from, you know, the average Canadian saying, oh my gosh, you know, I didn't really trust <laughs> the financial industry, especially post uh, 2007, 2008. But now I'm seeing this movement where I can actually invest with my values. So we're seeing a lot of investor demand and Canadians want to be there. Where we're finding challenges is, now we have to get in front of advisors, retail advisors, and train them on, you know, what this means, how to position it, how it affects the, you know, some of the compliance uh, requirements that advisors have, such as, you know, know your product or, or know, your, know your client. So there's, there's a number of things we need to work out there. And then what we also find in the, the retail space um, in Canada is there's still a high sensitivity to performance. Um, and and you'll find you know it's that's where and I think that that comes with um, the broker aspect of of the business right so I as an advisor add value to my client by ensuring that I'm able to get them the best returns possible and so that tends to be a little bit you know short term focused and oriented um, which I think doesn't do this space a lot of service so we're doing some work on education and awareness you know beyond McKenzie as as an industry to ensure that. You know, both advisors and investors know exactly what they're getting into when they're investing with more of an impact lens. I hope that did that, um, Rosie, was that uh, sufficient in, in terms of an overview? 
Oh, I think that's a, a magnificent overview. Thank you very much indeed. I'm just sorry, I'm scribbling notes while you're talking. <laughs> Uh, now, um, I think the more eagle-eared of our listeners will uh, recognise that Natasha doesn't sound Canadian. I understand you've recently moved to Canada. Is that correct, Natasha? Yes, that's right, Rosie. Um, I moved. And how? Sorry, I was going to say. And how does the Canadian perspective differ to the European one that you're used to? Yeah, yeah, I'm happy to answer both of those questions. Um, I've been in Canada now for about 18 months. Uh, I'm a pandemic immigrant. Um, just managed to squeeze under the wire before COVID hit. And um, so it's been a very interesting experience, but also a brilliant bet. Um, I mean, you know, there's a very close relationship between Canada uh, and particularly the UK. You know, we, sh we share a language. We also share a head of state. So many of the things uh, here are, uh, in life are very familiar to me. Um, but the market is different and fate, uh, you know, hit the nail on the head here. Canada is a resource economy. It's very similar to um, Australia in that respect. And, and Canada isn't just a country. It's really a vast continent. It's part of an extremely resource rich North American continent. Um, and in Europe, obviously, uh, we are, or I say we, but the Europeans, I still count myself as a European, um, you know, we are consumers of oil, we are consumers of metals, you know, we don't produce a lot of this stuff. Obviously, I, I take Norway, and you know, Norway's different, you know, as a massive oil producer, and the UK in the past with its North Sea oil fields, but... You know, Canada is a producer of metals, um, oil, and Europe is a consumer of those products. So I think that's the key, uh, the key difference to, to realize. So we are dealing with, when we talk about decarbonization of industry in Canada, that is very real. And the transition to a low carbon economy has a lot of effects, you know, on the industrial base, that's jobs, um, you know, out west with the, with the oil sands uh, and the mining. So I think just being cognizant of that producer economy, you know, mm -hmm. that, that is, is key really when we talk about sustainable investing. And also, you know, to Fake's point about the regulatory environment is different here what we've seen in europe and i'm talking about the eu here is you know regulation really driving capital into sustainable finance um, and that's very deliberate the eu has a 30-year plan um, or you know launched its 30-year plan in 2019 to move this the finance um, you know, the finance industry to sustainable finance is a very, very clear objective and has put in vast amounts of legislation to do that. In Canada, regulation is um, actually undertaken at a provincial level. And that's something that I've, I mean, I knew that because I was a regulator and I dealt with Canadian regulators before. But to your listeners, I think it's worth saying that Canada is a sum of huge provinces you know it's not just one country and the provinces have their own governments and their you know and their own political um persuasions and objectives so i think that's a big difference as well so we you know we don't see regulation driving um sustainable finance as much as we do in europe um and we are a resource economy so that brings its its own challenges 
That's really interesting what you're saying there about it's not that sort of blanket uh, regulatory landscape with each province having their own, um, you know, set of standards. Um, Say, could you outline for our listeners what sustainable investing looks like in practice uh, and perhaps tell us about the investment funds that you're working on at McKenzie? Yeah, I'd love to. And and uh, maybe just before that, Rosie, to add to um, Natasha's points, we actually are, we only make up 2% of the global uh, emissions in Canada. But I was presenting to a number of our um, clients earlier this week, and, and I said, but we're amongst the highest emitters on a per capita basis. I think we're we we definitely even beat the U.S. So um, so that's really? something that triggered everyone's <laughs> everyone piped in like okay so the two percent is not the number we should be going after it should be we should be going after the fifteen tons uh, of CO two uh, per <laughs> per capita per year anyway it's it's just uh, very very interesting and and uh, we hope we hope we do make uh, progress over the coming uh, year or two. That is a fascinating statistic. Wow. <laughs> Sorry, do continue. Um, yeah, so just on on what sustainable investing means to us and and how how you put it in in practice. So when you know we we we're very aware of the traditional kind of uh, the traditional definitions of sustainable investing, and what we wanted to do is we really because our, our firm is very much focused on the end investor and and the retail space. We do have. Quite a significant institutional business uh, as well, but from a from a communication perspective, we do focus on the end investor. Um, and so we we took um, the the definition. You know, one we we went kind of one level up, and we said, you know what, sustainable investing to us is about valuing progressive corporate behavior and action, um, and really in, ensuring that the companies that we're investing in respect their environmental and social effects of the products and services that they bring to the market. And so we hold ourselves um, accountable to, to that definition as well. And this is something that is now being communicated uh, across our investment funds and ETFs to ensure that you know, the companies we're investing in, again, are aware of, of what progressive uh, corporate behavior needs, means to us. Um, in in practice, there's uh, you know, a, a number of things that we focus on. So we have um, what, what Natasha's leading for, uh, for us is supporting our, our stewardship activities and, and building that out across. We have 17 investment boutiques, each that have a you know, diverse uh, philosophy and, and focus area. And so Natasha's trying to work across all of them to ensure that our stewardship strategy is effective. Uh, and we tend to focus more on stewardship and less on divestment, again, for all the, the you know, reasons that uh, Natasha has, has indicated in terms of the Canadian economy and, and how we're, we're um, where we, we get our value uh, today. Um, we also have a, a group that's focused purely on ESG research and um, and insights. And this group as well works across all 17 of our boutiques to provide support in terms of how to translate data, how to understand the data. As, as you know, it, we struggle with the same things. We're all using the same ESG data providers. So there's a lot of nuances in the data. There's a lot of data imputation and, and methodologies that are that continue to emerge. So we have a team that focuses on working across our boutiques to ensure that we understand in a consistent manner what, what these um, uh, data um, risks and opportunities bring us. And then on the sustainable solutions side, so this is, again, where we focus on um, investment funds and ETFs that have a sustainability objective. 
We have a small team there that helps to develop products um, and also bring products to the market. So a couple of the products that we we've uh, developed in, uh, you know, since since I've joined uh, and, and moved into this role is we we um, are really big on environmental uh, thematic investing. And last year we acquired a small boutique uh, that was based in Toronto called Greenship Financial. Um, and this boutique has been around since 2007. Uh, this this company focused really on the environmental thematic investing. They 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 you know got about a a, um, a list of about a thousand companies that they track, um, and you know they evaluate uh, their their. Um, a company's uh, revenue, um, green revenue alignment, and then uh, build uh, a portfolio based on that. We've got a couple of uh, portfolios that the or strategies that the team is managing now. One is our, our green ship environmental uh, global all cap fund. Um, that one has about you know 40, uh, 40 holdings, all companies that again are focused on delivering for the transition. So you'll find uh, solar uh, manufacturers and, and wind farm manufacturers in that strategy. Uh, we also created a balanced fund version of, of that same strategy. And that one also has a green bond, um, global green bond uh, sleeve in it as well. That's, you know, I, I believe we're at about 75% green uh, labeled debt. So it's, you know, if you want to make an impact, if you're focused on climate change, that's probably where you're going to get the most impact. Then earlier this year, we we developed, um, uh, hired a, a new manager and built out a new boutique that's called our Better World Boutique. This boutique takes more of a um, a modern approach to uh, uh, ESG uh, investing, and so you know they they have a list of um, industries that they exclude from their strategies, uh, and then they they really focus on uh, companies that are best in class within uh, their their uh, respective industries. Uh, and then but really have a, a very strong uh, uh, approach to stewardship and, and proxy voting. So we're really proud of the capabilities that this boutique is, has brought to our, our company. And one of the things that, you know, we were really focused on and why we chose to um, have these boutiques that are really pioneers in the space. So the gentleman that leads our Better World Boutique, Andrew Simpson, he's been doing sustainable investing for you know, over 10 years, and I'd say probably the better part of his 20-year career in, in this space as, or as a PM. Um, I love that we don't have to struggle with them on how to be sustainable. It's just part of their DNA, mm-hmm. right? So for us having uh, investment teams that just do this, not because they're getting paid for it, you know, not, not for any other reason, not for the profile, but they were doing it when nobody else was doing it, right? And, and I love that. And I feel like it's something that really helped to authenticate our position in the Canadian market. Um, actually, our greenship fund is quite popular in the European market as well. So we've got a, a number of opportunities there. But it's really like it's it's not, not, not taking a traditional manager that was trading oil and gas last year, right, and telling them to, to build out a, an environmental fund. That was something that's that was very important for us in, in our strategy. So, you know, we're really proud of what these two kind of more pure play boutiques are able to deliver. We have a couple of other boutiques where, you know, that are much more quant oriented, where we can work with them and, you know, set the parameters. Um, they're not fundamental managers. So it's a little bit easier for us to kind of provide the constraints. Um, so, you know, we have a, a, an um, emerging market strategy that we're, we're also um, uh, planning to uh, brand in, in, in Europe. 
And, you know, there it's, we work very closely and Natasha has actually been involved in this very closely with the PM on what, what are some of the constraints that we need to apply. So, you know, and we'll, we'll work with them to, to, to help uh, with, uh, with the outcomes and we'll ensure that we're, you know, we're, we're meeting some of the uh, evolving regulations in Europe. But uh, I'd say like the, the pure play uh, sustainable solutions is, is really what, what I'm most proud of and, and what we've been able to deliver here. I can hear the enthusiasm in your voice and it just, it sounds so great to have that sort of authenticity behind uh, what you do. So um, I don't know if you're aware that Guernsey Finance or We Are Guernsey recently held um, our annual Sustainable Finance Week, which explores, you know, key sustainable finance developments uh, in core financial services industries of private equity, private wealth, family office and the insurance industry. And, and many of the speakers uh, who came and spoke at our event agreed that regulations and policy are increasingly uh, an important focus for institutional investors. So, Natasha, I'd like to ask you what your views are on how different types of investors and managers are considering upcoming regulations. Do you think it's just a business risk for them to comply with upcoming mandatory reporting? Well, firstly, let me say that um, congratulations on uh, to Guernsey on your annual Sustainable Finance Week, which Thank I did you. Um, I thought it was a fantastic event, um, and I'm sure you're going to build on that and keep building on um, Guernsey's reputation as a leader in green finance. And I have to say personally, I learned a lot um, about regulation, even though it's a core interest of mine. Anyway, wow. um, thank you. <laughs> you had some good speakers, I, I think, um, you know, and then there was issues discussed around, um, you know, divestment versus stewardship, which which fate has also alluded to, you know, and the risks around divestment. And I thought that those were all very, very interesting points. Um, but to answer your question on whether I think um, regulation is seen as a business risk, um, I think it's I think it's more than that. I think what we're seeing is regulation creating a new marketplace and that for investors. It's reshaping the ecosystem and it creates business opportunities. Um, people are seeing that the, you know, the, the finance industry is moving towards sustainability. And, and if I look at something like private equity, I mean, a lot of these companies that are going to provide the solutions to um, you know, the, the energy transition will start in, in as private companies before they float. So, you know, I think um, players in the private equity space are very interested to see what the regulations do because they know that that's where they will put their capital now and in the future to fund these companies that are going to grow that we need um, for the energy transition. So I, I think it's, you know, regulation always, um, you know, creates opportunity if you're nimble enough, um, you know, to keep up, up with it. And I think in, in the private wealth sector, you know, we are seeing this, this huge wealth now that has been created in the last 20 years, you know, in the tech space, private wealth. Um, and I think that new generation of wealth wants its money to do good. Um, and I think we're going to see a lot of private wealth and family office money, you know, demanding sustainable solutions. They are that generation now. Um, 
And also, you know, the generation that's going to inherit the baby boomer wealth, you know, they're millennials. And they're thinking, hmm, you know, they grew up with sustainability and, and their values are um, we want our money to do good. So I, I think it's not just the case of, um, you know, complying with mandatory reporting. It's a complete shift of the financial ecosystem. Um, you know, we all know that, you know, to be a sustainable business, you know, you have to be, you have to comply with regulations. A well-regulated market creates opportunity. I've always believed that. Um, and I think what uh, is happening in the EU is creating vast amounts of opportunity um, and, and not just uh, a business risk. So, you know, I, I'm, I've always been pretty bullish on well-regulated markets creating opportunity. Um, and, and, you know, I think smart money is is coming into the sustainable investing space you know um just at a at warp speed really i would absolutely agree with you that um you know it's more than that and it's, it is reshaping the landscape and also with this younger generation coming through with that financial clout they're the ones who really uh you know are living with the effects of of climate change um I'll just move on. Um, Faith, you work with many retail investors as well as the larger institutional investors. Um, what, in your view, are the drivers for those retail investors and are they different to institutional investors? Today, just to add on to your um, Natasha's comments and your comments today, uh -huh. they are different, but uh, I, I do think they will change with this, the, the newer generations coming in being much more uh, value oriented, right? Seeing what's happening around them, uh, you know, the cl climate physical risks that is, you know, in, in, in Canada, um, BC, uh, which is on on the west coast, it's uh, I know BC. Yeah, it and is they're seeing it, aren't they? It's awful. What has just the number of catastrophes that has happened there in the last year alone? You know, from fires to flooding to just severe storms. I mean, you know, you you see you, you see the world around you being impacted by this, um, and then there's a there's a financial implication to that, right? So BC's economy is going to be hit, uh, you know, significantly in, in the coming months. So, you know, I, th I think it's, it's, I hope, you know, I'm, I'm going to speak to the retail investor today, but I, I hope we see that changing uh, in, in the coming years and uh, generations. So I, we find that, you know, in, in Canada, and, and I'm not sure if it's the end investor, or if it's how retail advisors position solutions, but they do tend to be a, a much more short-term oriented. And with institutional investors, right, you're managing uh, pension plans, you've got much more of a long-term um, uh, time horizon. On the retail side, I think often there's a, a sense that as an advisor, I have to you know, generate value. I have to keep my clients, uh, you know, happy. And, and, and that is is showing that you're um, you're delivering on the risk return profile that you've committed to your investor. And so th there is a big um, um, knowledge gap on on the um, performance versus impact, um, and the challenges with when when you are a bit more short term oriented. You're not thinking about the long-term stakeholder. You're not thinking about, you know, the implications of your activities today that those might have on the environment, right? You're chasing the, the stock market, which as we all know is quite emotional. 
um, mm-hmm. and is and is uh, is probably not 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 a best practice. And I think the last decade has proven that you know time and time again. Um, but w- what we do see is you know I'm saying that, but I I do think there's a a the demand from a retail investor side that's starting to emerge. Um, the um, in, at, by the end of 2020 mutual fund assets in sustainable funds grew by 55% relative to the 11% that we saw um, in the traditional fund space. So, I mean, those are big growth numbers anyway. I think we all saw a lot of, a lot of uh, investments coming into, a lot of capital coming into um, our space. But you know, that's like a five times uh, the, the growth, which is wonderful. Today it's about 30 billion in in assets and it's continuing to grow. You know, two years ago when I came into this role, it was just $12 billion. And I remember, which is quite small, right? Canada's about a a four and a half now, four and a half trillion uh, dollar uh, industry. So um, when I when I took the role, I'm sure many of my colleagues were like, what? We're focusing on this? <laughs> 30 billion in, in the grand scheme of things is, is not massive, but the growth rate is, is incredible. And we want to grow uh, this space. You know, I, I say to many of our peers, uh, our competitors, I said, at this point, we all need to bind together and focus on growing the size of this pie. We need to bring more capital into this space. You know, we can't be competing against uh, against each other right now because we have to bind together and provide the education and the much needed awareness for the importance that investors can bring in, in allocating capital to mutual funds and ETFs that are actually driving the change and supporting the, the energy transition. So there's a bit more work that we need to do um, it, with both retail investors and advisors in terms of education, but, it, but it's moving in, uh, in the right direction and, and we're really excited to, to be part of that journey. That's great to hear that it's moving in the right direction. Um, Now, you are both probably well aware of the recent COP26 event that took place in Glasgow. Uh, We were very lucky. Our Green Finance Manager, Stephanie Glover, and our Green and Sustainable Finance Strategic Advisor, Josephine Bush, were able to attend. Um, And their feedback from that was that people working across the finance sector they spoke to, it was the first time that they'd attended and it really felt like this COP was, um, it's been dubbed the finance COP, where industry is really engaged and creating momentum for sustainable investing. Natasha, do you feel that this COP's galvanised the finance industry? Uh, And I'd also like to know uh, what you're expecting in terms of tangible action plans from the finance industry on the back of COP. Yes, I think for me, COP was perhaps the culmination of a lot of work that has been happening uh, prior to the actual meeting in the finance sector. Um, But I think what what COP actually did was show and, and publicly commit the financial system to net zero. And I think that's important. It was a public statement of the financial industry is now driving towards net zero and we're on that path and and, and that's where we're going um, by by 2050. I mean, just some numbers around that. When um, Italy and the UK took over COP, there was $5 trillion $5 allocated to the net zero economy and now it's $130 trillion of private capital committed to transforming the economy to net zero. So, I mean, that's immense. We are seeing the the massive capital flows into net zero. So I think 
I think that's the baseline. Um, I think what COP really did was bring private finance into the game. We know we can't um, transform our economies. I mean, we've been working um, off a fossil fuel based, industrial base, you know, for for a couple of hundred years now. You know, we we can't publicly finance the transition in a very short space of time. So I think what uh, COP did was was really say, look, to private the you know the investors of private capital, we need your help. Um, and you are going to be central to that uh, transition. Um, also, what I I think what I um, expecting in terms of tangible action plans, I think we're going to see some of the more I hate to call it boring stuff, but we're going to see um, you know a lot of work behind the scenes to get the reporting done. I'm I'm a big fan of disclosure. Uh, I think the creation of the sustainable International Sustainable Standards Board, um, which was announced at, at COP, is going to be key um, in terms of global reporting of climate and sustainability standards. That sounds quite a dry subject, but you know they will say you know what get what gets measured gets managed, and that's true. We oh, yeah. need we need to move to a different type of report. We're not just saying, oh, this is how much, um, you know, profit we made. We're saying, you know, we're going to move to a system of of financial reporting is to say this is how we made our profit. And company value will be be judged on that basis. Not just how much money did you make, but how did you make that profit? And I think something like the setting up of the sustainability, the International Sustainability Standards Board, is is a tangible action plan to get us to that point. Um, Also, the commitment, you know, of capital flows to emerging and developing economies. Um, You know, it, it hasn't been... It hasn't been successful so far. You know, the the actual transfer of capital to help developing economies with their transition has been slow. Um, $100 million was committed. Uh, Sorry, $100 billion was committed, but we need more. Uh, And, you know, also uh, good news is that the Financial Alliance, which is called, uh, you know, the Financial Alliance of Banks, GFANCE, as it's called, Glasgow Finance, Financial Alliance, has announced that it will have a permanent secretariat across the globe. And I think, again, that just shows that the financial industry is serious about doing the hard work on net zero. Um, so, yeah, I, I think we're going to see activity, perhaps not as glamorous as a, as a COP26, but behind the scenes, there's going to be a lot of work to do, a lot of heavy lifting coming. Hey, do you think uh, that COP delivered from a Canadian perspective? Um, I, I do. I think there was a lot of c- commitments made. Um, right, there's a commitment made to um, end funding of uh, unabated international fossil fuels, you know, ending deforestation, um, Canada signed the Global Methane Pledge. Um, so there's there a number of commitments made. And, and I know there's, you know, a, a number of commitments made for, you know, the asset managers, uh, which we were also aligned to um, the Net Zero Asset Manager Alliance which very few actually, um, few uh, Canadian asset managers signed up for. And I, I say that because it's commitments have been um, easy for us to 
put things down on paper. And I think now what we expect to see is I'd like to see some action. So earlier this year, the, the Canadian government passed a, a new legislation, uh, the Canadian Net Zero Emissions Accountability Act, to really start to hold the, 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 the different government constituents um, accountable for delivering on our net zero um, emissions. It's, it's um, sorry, on our net decarbonization or, or net zero pledges. So it's, it's um, I think we made a lot of commitments and, and we're looking forward to seeing how the Canadian government is planning to meet all of these commitments. So part of this accountability act that was launched earlier this year, I believe it passed in June, um, was for our minister of um, environment and climate change to come back and with, with an actual plan. And to Natasha's earlier point on the federal versus provincial uh, government in Canada, whatever plan they put forward, I hope they've they've aligned with all the, the right the right constituents and, and we've got uh, a, a path forward. So yeah, it, it delivered a lot of commitments. We've seen those before. We'd like to see um, more action now. We're also one of the other things we're waiting for is the uh, sustainable finance um, uh, taxonomy um, that's meant to uh, uh, get released by by the end of the year. So a few things still up in the air that we we are um, obviously advocating uh, for. Um, so I, if I can say to be to, to be determined, Rosie, and we can come back to it in three months when I know exactly what that action plan is going to look like. But from a from a commitment perspective, yes, lots of commitments made, and I, I hope we're able to meet them. It's a real case of watch this space, <laughs> and uh, yeah. Um, Natasha, an emerging trend at the moment is the idea behind nature-based solutions to help solve the climate and diversity crisis. Um, Is that a trend that you're seeing? Yeah, I mean, it's a nascent trend. Uh, I think it's worth saying, you know, at at, at COP, just to go back to COP, that um, 130 countries have pledged or did pledge to reverse de- deforestation by 2030. Uh, and they, those countries actually represent about 90% of the world's forests. And I, I don't think we can talk about climate without talking about biodiversity because they are inextricably linked. I mean, oh, absolutely. forests are carbon sinks, trees are, you know, carbon sinks. And so I think, you know, they are two sides of the same coin. For the last five years, we've seen a huge focus on climate and carbon emissions. And I think for the next five years, we're going to see the same kind of focus on biodiversity. I mean, obviously, um, the task force, uh, the TCFD, the the task force on climate disclosures, has now created the task force on nature-related financial disclosures. And they are busy, the TFND, and they are busy coming up with the the framework for biodiversity disclosures. So I think, yes, absolutely, you know, the next five years, we're going to see the focus on biodiversity that we've seen on climate for for the last five years. You know, there is, um, there's less data in this area. So I think that's tricky. You know, carbon uh, data is now, you know, becoming quite mature. Uh, biodiversity data it is at the early stage. So, you know, I think, like we say, we're going to hear more and more about biodiversity, but we all know it, it, it's connected. Um, you know, we're, we're pretty smart. And I think we will see uh, investors really starting to say, okay, you, you've got the cl- you've, you've got the carbon issue 
you know, kind of in your portfolios. Tell me about what you're doing on deforestation. What kind of uh, companies are you invested in? Um, you know, and what, what is their biodiversity score? And I think we're going to see a lot of rating scorings in this area. And I think, um, it, you know, it, it's going to be very interesting. Absolutely. Fate, how are carbon markets and carbon pricing affecting these emerging trends, would you say? Um, so I will say that uh, car- the carbon pricing is absolutely essential um, to uh, to our transition. And, and I want to... Pr- um, clarify by saying global carbon pricing. We can't have what, and I'll give you an example. Um, in Canada, we've had, you know, carbon tax kind of on and off from the mid 2000s. Um, and in 2019, the government, um, you know, passed a, a carbon tax. Um, so they passed this carbon tax and I'm, I'm not a fan, by the way, of carbon tax. I do love the European model and a model that we see. Uh, there's an agreement between uh, um, Quebec and California for a, a carbon market. I, I find those work a little bit, a uh, little bit better, but the carbon tax in Canada that was finally became law in, in 2019, it hasn't actually, we don't see any reductions in our emissions. And, you know, and we, we work very closely and we're invested in the resource sector. So I'm not, I'm, you know, I'm not um, telling them anything they don't know if they're, if they're listening to this, but, but they just pass on that tax to, to the end consumer. Uh, it's so, it's so easy to do that. And then, and then, you know, the global aspect comes from, you know, m- most of our um, resources get exported, you know, to the U S I, I want to say something like 75% gets exported to the U S China is now a big partner of ours. So if those countries are not holding our industries accountable, um, then, you know, it's, it's, it's not, it's not going to be very effective. And that's, I think what we're experiencing in Canada today. So I think having a, a global price on carbon, um, and having a, a, a carbon carbon market, something like what what the uh, what Europe has done with their ETS uh, system is is absolutely where we need to get to. This is you know just because I emit in in one jurisdiction doesn't mean you know the jurisdiction uh, you know across the the ocean isn't being affected uh, by by climate change. Um, and so I I know this was a big topic at COP twenty six, um, and and hope that we we see more um, more progress there. You know, the, the other thing I'll, I'll say just on maybe on the voluntary market, because this is something that we're looking at very closely, I I find it and I will say horrific when when we see, um, you know, companies uh, that have not um, uh, put actions in place to actually lower the, their emissions, uh, participating in the voluntary carbon market, um, you know, and, and I think uh, where where the uh, um, international community is going to move to, and and our our um, Canadian uh, uh, friend uh, Mark Carney is is really um, uh, you know helping to um, um, uh, blaze this this path for us um, is is ensuring that companies need to try their best to reduce their emissions. And then your carbon uh, offsets um, are, are purchased on, you know, the, the last bit that, that you're really being challenged with and might require more, more investment or capital deployment. We see the same thing on the, on the investment side. We've seen a number of traditional funds. We've seen funds that track uh, traditional indices that are filled with, you know, fossil fuel uh, 
exposures uh, try to uh, offset those um, those emissions by buying offsets. And I just think that is not how we need to be using these, right? You try to decarbonize your portfolio, your company to the extent that you can, and your offsets are based should be your last, absolutely your last resort. So I'm, I'm really um, looking forward to some of the international regulations that, that will come um, in, into the space. And a global pricing system is absolutely essential uh, to, to decarbonizing the, the globe. Absolutely. Um, I'd like to stay with you, Faith. Um, investing with a gender lens is also a growing investment team. Um, I'm interested to know your thoughts on why this is and why does gender lens investing make business sense? Oh my goodness! Now you're getting to the <laughs> it's a big question. <laughs> it really is. We we actually have so on our uh, shelf today we have a women's leadership fund, and this women's leadership fund um, it's a global fund. It invests in companies um, that have a, a number of uh, uh, attributes. One is they need to have at least three women on their board. Um, you know, another one is a CEO or CFO um, needs to be uh, a female. Uh, it's, it also has a number of constraints on aligning to the um, um, uh, empowerment, women's empowerment principles. Uh, you know, there's some uh, um, constraints around the number of women in leadership and, and having a gender-based uh, um, diversity strategy as well. So it's it's a, a wonderful fund. I'm personally invested in it. Unfortunately, um, these funds do not do really well in, in the market. Um, and, you know, especially amongst uh, retail investors um, in, in the Canadian market space, I, I want to say there's, um, there's probably about five funds in that, you know, you know are, are uh, gender, uh, gender based uh, investing funds. And collectively, we, we've probably we have under under half a million uh, Canadian dollars in, in assets. And maybe that's that's probably a little bit high. I think there's been some uh, recent redemption uh, redemptions. The approach that I, I am, we're taking at McKenzie and, and I think the approach that many of our peers are taking is this is just the right thing to do. We need to get to, you know, more diverse um, leadership teams, more diverse companies, because there's just so many uh, benefits that are associated with that in in Canada alone, women still earn 24% less on average uh, than, than men. Um, and, you know, in, in, there was a study that came out of uh, the, the U.S. It was based on about um, 3,000 um, uh, companies in the U.S. And it saw that companies that had at least three women on the board had a 10% um, higher return on equity and a 37% uh, higher earnings per share. So the data is there. The research is there. Um, and if it's there, then we probably don't need to do it in just one fund. This is something we'll want to do across our investments. So in, in going into 2022, uh, 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 now that we have better data, there's there's more um, mandatory and regulated reporting around gender and ethnic diversity uh, metrics of a company. So we feel like we're at a point now where we can work across all the companies that we're invested in to ensure that they're meeting um, some of um, some of those uh, thresholds and that they have a diverse diversity, equity and inclusion strategy uh, in, in place. So, you know, for um, countries and jurisdictions like Canada and the US, Europe, um, these are really like, I'm just, it, it saddens me that we're not there yet. 
it's um it's something that we've been talking about for for um, so many years now and um i think now we're at the point where we have enough data to really start driving change as as active investors and let's hope it sort of accelerates over the, <laughs> the coming months. Um, now, I have a final question for you both. With so many funds and companies claiming ESG credentials, how can you be mindful of greenwashing? Um, and what do you think investors should be looking out for? Uh, Natasha, do you want to go first? Sure, yeah. I mean, obviously, the the phrase greenwashing um, strikes fear into the heart of both investors and, uh, you know, asset managers. But I think, you know, we need to make a, a different a differential here, you know, about intent. You know, I think there's a very big difference between um, a, a company whose intention is is to say something's green. And I don't just mean in finance here. I mean, you know, across the board to say something's green when they actually know it's not. And a company um, that is very genuine in its ESG um, ambitions and is working in an environment which is still very new. I mean, we're talking about data that, um, you know, we're in, in, a, in a data ecosystem that is growing and developing um, and, and is still quite new. So I think in terms of greenwashing, um, companies who are developing green products uh, just need to be very methodical in the way they choose their stocks, the way that they report, the data that they use, and also the transparency of disclosure. I think really that's what we're talking about here. It's about being transparent um, about what is in your investments. And, and, and if you're transparent, then you're not greenwashing. Um, and I think that's what investors need to be looking for. They need to be looking um, at products that have full disclosure on, on what's, what's in those products um, and keeping up to, you know, a, a company that, that makes statements that, um, you know, that they're up to date with the regulations. Um, and, and I think that's how we deal with, with this potential um, of, of greenwashing. It's about being transparent, methodical, um, but also accepting that, you know, some of the data sets out there, and this is across the board, not just, um, you know, are, are beginning to come out. I mean, that's, like I said about biodiversity, there isn't a huge amount of data right now available. So um, I think disclosure is, is key, transparency, disclosure, and being methodical. Okay, thank you. And Fate, how about you? Yeah, I, I love the the intent and the ambition that um, and Natasha touched on are so critical. I, I mean, obviously, looking at the um, investment objective and what the the strategy is is so important for investors. I will say just you know a couple of things. It's important to review the the data and the sustainability characteristics uh, that that you know an, an asset manager might be providing. But you know, one of the things that that we struggle with and we continue to relay to our investors is there's a there's a this whole focus on decarbonization and how soon we can decarbonize you know it's it's a good and a challenging thing at the, at the same time i'll give you an example we we have our, our green bond that i mentioned earlier a green bond fund that we have on our shelf this green bond we wanted to invest in 
industrials, materials-based companies, you know, you know, even fossil fuel companies that are issuing green bonds to help them with to help fund their transition. And so what you're going to get from those holdings is you're going to get a higher carbon intensity than if you went ahead and invested with you know, a technology company or a financial services company, right? Whose footprint might be uh, a little bit less and uh, who are not in a, a carbon intensive industry. So I think, you know, did, I love the point Natasha made on transparency and really understanding what you're in. For me, I choose to go with, I want to help the carbon intensive industries decarbonize um, that should be, that's a, a big, that's where I can make the most impact, right? Versus, and not to say I'm not taking away from the others. Like I, I do think it has to be balanced, but, but ensuring you understand exactly what the investment manager is trying to achieve, um, that their, you know, their objective is consistent with the um, sustainability reporting that they're providing to you um, and that you understand where there's, you know, nuances in, in some of the metrics and, and why those nuances exist. It's absolutely uh, important. So it's a little bit more work and still more education what we all have to do. And obviously better data um, needs to needs to still happen. But, uh, but uh, those are just a, a couple of things that I think might be helpful. That's great. Thank you so much. Thank you both, Fate and Natasha, for your time and your insights today. I think we've covered some really fascinating topics. And thanks also to you for tuning into today's podcast. We have quite a back catalogue of interviews and panel discussions on the Guernsey Green Finance podcast channel. And you can check them out by searching for Guernsey Green Finance wherever you get your podcasts. And if you enjoyed today's episode, please leave us a review or a comment. It's always great to hear your feedback. You can also find us at guernseygreenfinance.org and weareguernsey.com. You can interact with us on Twitter at gsygreenfinance and at weareguernsey. We will also have links to Fate, Natasha and Mackenzie's social media in our show notes. So check them out to hear more from them. And we'll be back soon with another edition of the Guernsey Green Finance podcast. 